Hello, Monetization Nation. Welcome back to another episode with Dave Knox. Dave is the author of the book, Predicting the Turn, the high stakes game of business between startups and blue chips. In today's episode, we'll discuss how to predict the turn so we can better leverage tectonic shifts. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. You have an impressive book out there, and it's called Predicting the Turn, the high stakes game of bus- the business between startups and blue chips. So before I get into specific questions, why don't you give us just a, a summary of your book? What are the, what are the, what's the key point that you're trying to make and, and maybe some of the, the key takeaways that are most important to you from that book? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the inspiration behind writing it um, because that kind of leads to what the subject of it is, which is, you know, three years ago when I wrote it, um, which makes it sound dated now to talk that way. But, you know, I was spending time with this, you know, the days and weekend or the days, you know, called the work days, working with these big companies, you know, whether it's Ford or Unilever, everything else. And then these nights and weekends working with startups. And what I realized was that, you know, end of the day, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, It's all about business and about what change people are trying to do. And the problem was that each side was looking at the other side, um, thinking that the grass is a little bit greener. Um, you know, you had the big corporations looking at things like the lean startup and agility and all these different stuff. And, you know, the startups looking at how can they become the big companies. And what I wanted predicting to turn to be about was less about the glamorization of either side of those but instead about a mindset and a mindset that it's not about predicting. It's not about trend forecasting or any of these other things, but it's about these shifts that are happening in the business world. You know, obviously a major focus that you have is, you know, the tectonic shifts as you call them. And that's what predicting the turn was about is that being involved with startups and being involved with innovation and disruption or pick any other buzzword out there, it's not about doing it just to do it, but it's about the insight that can give you to your own business and the ability to connect the dots and to realize that no one's going to know with certainty exactly what's coming down the line. But if you've been involved with these worlds and you start preparing yourself for it, you will have mapped out these different scenarios and these different ways that things can go and the probability of one thing or another thing in preparing yourself to be able to do it and putting yourself in that driver's seat. So that's what kind of the book is about. And a lot of the theories in it are around how do you do that? How do you start looking at where things might be going, where changes might be taking place And then more importantly, how do you bring those back into your own job, your own industry, your own career to put yourself in a place to take advantage of them? Yeah. How you're describing that, you're right, is is very similar to this concept of tectonic shifts that we talk a lot about in our show. Um, I'm very fascinated with this topic. In your book, you tell a lot of great stories. I'm going to go through and just ask you about some of these stories and... and, um, if you'd like to share them, great. If you want to pass on the story, that's great. Um, so the first one is the Kodak story. 
Yeah. So, you know, the Kodak, it's the one I start the book off with. And, you know, you know, we all know the famous tagline of a Kodak moment. You know, it's kind of what Kodak uh, meant for so many years. But one of the things I talk about is I think the Kodak moment has taken on a new meaning. And what I mean by that is the Kodak moment is the uh, being in the driver's seat, being in control of where a industry and your own business could go, but missing it because you're not willing to give up what you have right now. And the example I use in there is um, the gentleman that actually owns the patent on the digital camera um, and digital imagery kind of as a whole was actually an engineer uh, named Steve Sasson that was at Kodak. And he actually invented that in the 1970s, well before any of us were thinking about, you know, what digital pictures were or anything else. Um, but when he presented it to the leadership team at Kodak, you know, they kind of dismissed it. And, you know, they dismissed it for a lot of reasons, but one of the biggest of which is they made a lot of money off of the paper and the printing of photographs. And what they missed was they thought that they were in, you know, the physical photo and maybe the technology side of things with the cameras themselves, but they were actually in the, you know, the sharing of moments and that what Kodak moment meant to be was about capturing moments and sharing those and everything else. And what we've all experienced is there are more photos taken today than there ever were when we were using physical photos. Um, because when you had a roll of film and you had to have that exact perfect photo, you weren't going to take 24 photos of, you know, people just sitting there smiling. Because each one- hundred times more photos now than yeah. we did back then. Yeah, magnitudes more. And we share them more and everything else. And if Kodak had realized that, you know, they would be in a vastly different position than they are today. Uh, and they had it, they had that moment, but uh, they just missed it uh, in terms of where they, where they could go and what would come about it. Thank you, great story. Okay, tell me about NatureBox. That's one our company, our, our family loves. Yeah, so NatureBox is a, a fun business that uh, started by actually a good friend of mine from our P&G days together. And, you know, subscription commerce, I'll use that as the overall story for it, because I actually think it, it applied to a lot of different industries at the same time, whether it was NatureBox or, uh, you know, BarkBox in the food, the pet supply space, et cetera, which was this realization of the shift that had happened, which was around uh, convenience and time, that as all of these things emerge kind of across the board of, you know, taking time from people's lives, that what e-commerce actually unlocked was the ability to give time back to people uh, and to give it back, but also to give them a sense of discovery. Uh, because one of the problems of e-commerce, and I think it's just now kind of being solved at the moment, is that e-commerce is probably the best buying tool that has ever been created. If you know what you want and you know, you've got exactly in mind what you're looking for, it's just a matter of finding where it's sold on Amazon, on Amazon or eBay or some other place. But if you want it, you can find it. Um, that was never necessarily true in traditional retail, where you just had to hope your local store would have something. But what e-commerce has allowed is they've made it the best buying tool in the world. Where it's fallen historically a little bit flat is in being a shopping tool. 
And shopping is an inherent human behavior. We love, we're gatherers and we love to explore and to see and to learn. And that's why somebody can go get lost in a mall for multiple hours or lost in a grocery store or anything else because it's the discovery. It's the walking the aisles, walking the store and finding that thing that you did not expect to find. Um, people just love that. Yeah. Um, that why I have a hundred things in my Amazon cart. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what it leads to. But the problem is that, you know, despite that, Amazon has actually made it historically kind of difficult to do that. Um, and a lot of e-commerce stores have made it really difficult. What the subscription commerce guys did was they allowed it easy for you to buy, but then the discovery took place at home where you would get this box and it would be filled with things that you didn't even know you wanted or that you were looking for, but they curated and brought it to you. Uh, and that's the same thing that BarkBox did with Pat and Birchbox did with Beauty and you can kind of go down the line. And I think that's a fascinating thing in where people screwed up, you know, and this goes back to the, what was the predicting the turn and where should big companies have thought about it was big companies looked at those emergence of boxes and they were asking whether or not it was a good or a bad business idea. Um, you know, and they were thinking of it purely as a retail play. So you, they would look at BarkBox and say, can BarkBox beat PetSmart? They'd look at Birchbox and say, can Birchbox beat Sephora? And so it was a thinking of this is a retail only thing. Yeah. But what they missed is a realization that was actually a brand building thing. And that would create much, much more opportunity for them if they'd embraced it instead of analyze whether it was good or a bad business. And they missed the boat that it was actually a forebearer of people wanting that convenience. And if it wasn't for those subscription boxes of, you know, the 2010 through 2013, we wouldn't have companies like DoorDash and GoPuff and others today, because these were just the laying the foundation for that convenience and that immediacy. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So often the big business, when they look at a new emerging opportunity, the emerging, the emerging opportunity is so small and it just can't compete with the existing revenue streams. And, and they've got to step back and not compare it. And they've got to separate it out and, and build it as a separate business unit that doesn't even have to compete with those. It's not an either or, it's, a, it's an and, right? It's a Exactly. How, how do we seize this new opportunity? Because if they don't, the emerging uh, business is going to seize them and going to leapfrog them in many ways. Yep, that's exactly it. Okay, tell me your Nestle story. Yeah, so, you know, Nestle is a business that, uh, you know, I've been able to follow from uh, the sidelines quite a bit because uh, two good friends of mine actually have gone on and been uh pretty instrumental leaders at that company. Um, so one of them was a gentleman that luckily has returned back home now named Pete Blackshaw, who went to be the global head of digital innovation at uh, Nestle and now is back here in Cincinnati as the CEO for Centrifuge. Uh, and another is a gentleman named Mark Bredore who leads their Silicon Valley innovation outpost. And I think what's really interesting with Nestle is that a lot of people have uh, created these innovation outposts. And they'll open them in places like Silicon Valley. And 
oftentimes they're hoping that they're going to source magic uh, from those, that just being in a place is going to lead to discovery. But what Nestle did that I think is so interesting across the board is their focus was they realized that the outpost was actually supposed to be a bridge and it was meant to be a bridge back to the company. And so what they intentionally did with uh, Mark and his colleague, Stephanie, who were kind of the first two founders of the SVIO, as they call it, they were actually long-term Nestle employees. And they were Nestle employees that had had multiple roles across the company. And why that was important is a company like Nestle, it's you know, a Swiss-based company headquartered in Vivay, Switzerland, but it's got offices across the globe. It's got, you know, the Nespresso team in one place, the Nestle Waters team, the Nestle USA team, the Stouffer's team, you know, go across the board and they're all over. And the problem was that if you were a brand that was in Silicon Valley, you know, the startups you're working with, they don't care about all those differences. They just know that your business card says Nestle on it. And can you actually help make the connections to the right people? And with the choice that the SVIO made of bringing uh, industry, you know, people from within the company that knew the, that bridge and could be that connection, they were able to do that in a really meaningful way. And when they came across an opportunity, they knew who to go to. And the problem that if you look at a lot of the other companies, they would go hire somebody from Google or Apple or whatever else because they thought we need a Silicon Valley native to do this work for us. But those people might have been really good externally, but they didn't know the connections internally. And they didn't know how to be those bridges and do all that work. Um, so that's why I think it's fascinating with the SVIO and what Nestle has kind of done as a whole is they've used that not as the you know, load-bearing wall and the only solution, but they intentionally have that word outpost. It is part of the company that is someplace else that is going to have those connections back to the company overall and help them kind of predict the turn and see what's going on out there. Tell me another story or two that are your favorites from the book. I can make sure I get the best ones in. Yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I pay a lot of attention to is where things actually go afterwards. And, you know, as I mentioned, the book's kind of a moment in time that was out there and written. And what I've been really fortunate with is that the book has given me the opportunity to do a lot of keynote speeches uh, in a lot of different companies and a lot of different places kind of over the years. And I say that because sometimes the stories that you originally told uh, actually change and evolve over the time, um, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. So one of those, uh, you know, I guess you could call it for the bad, is a story I loved, which is what Under Armour was doing. And, you know, Under Armour, if you've studied them as a business over the last four to five years, it's been a really tough road for them. You know, they were a business that came from nowhere, uh, really overtook the entire industry, and actually became the number two market share company in the athletic space um, in a pretty short order when you think about other things. And so right around the time when the book was written, they had just uh, done three pretty massive acquisitions in the digital space. Um, they had bought basically the three leading digital fitness tracking companies that were out there. And when you looked at those acquisitions, you know, the thing that they talked about was that 
they were living in an industry where it was about the celebrity endorser, you know, the, the Michael Jordan, the LeBron, et cetera. And they didn't believe that they could necessarily compete toe to toe with a Nike in terms of that and the dollars that were spent, et cetera. And so what they decided to do instead was to compete with the everyday athlete, um, empowering you and I through data to become better athletes or just to accomplish whatever fitness goals we might personally have. Um, so they had bought these tools to be able to go do that. And, you know, my theory at the time was that was them predicting the turn of where things were going to go uh, and where the, the market was going to turn out. The thing is that they actually got it right on the data side of things, but they didn't get right on the manifestation of it. Um, because if you look at what's played out with that digitization of fitness and exercise, that trend that Under Armour had recognized is partially what gave rise to Peloton and Tonal and to all of these other companies out there. They just missed what that manifestation was going to be. And so I think that's part, it's a lesson in what predicting the turn means, because it's not about saying for sure this is the tactical answer, but it's instead starting with, here's how I think something is going to play out. How can we have all of the different? And the problem is Under Armour went all in with the belief of it's going to be in the fitness tracker side of things. And what they probably should have done is actually spread those bets a little bit more and maybe bought one of those fitness trackers and taken those dollars and put those into other things in the belief of digital and data and what that manifestation might have been. So they should have had you consulting for them on that acquisition. They had smart people. They just, uh, they went a little hard on, uh, on the buying spree, if you will. Yeah. And I was a stock owner, so I wish it hadn't turned out that way, but I've been holding that portfolio for a long time. What do you believe is the biggest tectonic shift happening today that's affecting business? Yeah, I think the the biggest shift um, is the passion we started with at the beginning of this, which is the rise of entrepreneurship. And what I mean by that is, you know, one, we're seeing it with COVID. Uh, play out right now that business starts have never been higher across the board. But really what it's about is that entrepreneurship inherently has always had, um, you know, barriers that are out there and, you know, access to capital, you know, cost of starting a business, you know, go down the list of all the things out there. And what's amazing today is the tools that have emerged that allow you to start a business in a space that you probably never could have done one before. Um, you know, think about just with e-commerce, you know, you and I can go stand up a Shopify store, an Etsy store, an eBay store, you know, an Amazon fulfillment in a matter of hours at most when just 10 years ago to do that and to create an e-commerce site that could allow a third party to buy from you to get something shipped, to accept payment, that was going to take tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars and a whole lot more time. And so we have all these things that are emerging that allow entrepreneurship to be not easier because entrepreneurship is the best and worst job you'll ever have in your life of the roller coaster, but the getting it starting to be easier. 
and to be more attainable for a lot of people. And that I think we're just seeing the impact of. Um, you know, if you look just over the last decade, you know, the no, number of new consumer brands that have emerged over the last decade is because of that, because the barrier to entry is getting lower. You know, the ability to work with a contract manager, man, manufacturer to create a product and to make a product, the a way to do fulfillment um, using third-party logistics and everything else. Like we're just starting to see the ramifications of that. Um, and I really think we're emerging in a world where I'm not sure if we're ever going to have another billion dollar consumer brand out there, but we're going to see all the billion dollar brands broken into a lot of hundred million dollar brands that were created by entrepreneurs uh, and really more personalized versus mass. I remember when I started my first business and I had to build my own mail server and I had to host my own websites and we had to, all of our coding was hundred percent from scratch. And yep. I look at it today and it's so you can turn on your AWS servers overnight and you can use Gmail for five bucks a month with, you know, amazing spam filtering and features. And, and um, you can do almost any technology you want to do with existing technology or, or at least get 90% of the way there. And um, it is things that would have cost, you know, $2 million when, when I was starting my business 24 years ago, my first one, you know, you, you can get it done in for $200,000 and get a much better product than, than we ever had back then. And uh, then you can follow upgrade paths. And yeah, I, I see that as a huge tectonic shift and, and, um, and it's so much easier to get an entrepreneurial venture going today you leveraging existing technologies. And I guess the advice I would give is if you're a new entrepreneur and you don't understand the existing technologies that you can leverage and some developer is telling you, you have to build it from scratch, go get a second opinion yep. because it's so much easier than, and, and the vast majority of things you do not have to build from scratch. And, and honestly, if you have to build, build it from scratch, you might reconsider your business model and find something where you can leverage existing technologies. That's exactly it. It's such a true and such great advice. All right. What is the biggest failure or mistake that you may have made in your career? That, and, and what did you learn from it? You know, it's, uh, that's, it's always an interesting one of how uh, introspective to, to get on things of that nature. Um, you know, for me, it's, you know, I think every mistake, there's been plenty of businesses that I've lost a lot of money on, uh, you know, kind of across the board. Um, and I'd say the, there's a few commonalities with all of those, but one of the things that kind of goes back and it's what shapes how I think about from an entrepreneurship is as an investor, when I've looked at businesses and those where I've lost money on as a result, almost every time the reason for it was betting on the idea instead of betting on the person. Um, it was looking at an idea, seeing the potential, knowing if it was just shifted this way or that way, believing it would un unlock something drastic. And in those cases where I maybe overlooked, was this the right entrepreneur to be able to do that? You know, were they, did they have that secret sauce that would unable to do it? Those are the ones where I've lost the most money. And then on the flip side, you know, the ones where I've been most successful have become because of the tenacity of the entrepreneur. 
you know, that person had something special. And oftentimes the thing they ended up building wasn't necessarily the thing I even invested in. Um, but the person didn't change. The person was the same. They were the one driving and doing that. And, and so, you know, opportunity to make it work. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for me, that's been a really big lesson is, you know, it's end of the day, business, is, it might be about dollars and cents, but it's ultimately a, a person and a people game. And, you know, betting on the people, whether it's the people at your, your company that you hire, the partners that you have, or the folks you invest in, um, that is worth, you know, that's number one, two, and three on my list when I look at something. Uh, and the idea is, you know, number four at best. Thank you so much, Dave, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, in business, we'll never know with certainty what's going to happen next, but we can start preparing ourselves and map out different ways and scenarios of how things can go. Number two, big companies should look at emerging business opportunities as separate business units that don't have to compete with existing resources. Number three, instead of building from scratch, always try to leverage existing technologies to build our business. It generally saves time and money. Number four, when we're looking to invest in a new business, it's important to not just focus on the idea, but also on the people who are going to execute that idea. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Dave or connect with him, you can find him on LinkedIn or visit his website at predictingtheturn.com or his company website at natureswillowbalm.com. You can also find his book on Amazon. And there's links to all of these websites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. Do you want to be a better digital monetizer? Then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, get a free monetization assessment of your business or subscribe to the free monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com. Number two, you can subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast or YouTube channel. And number three, please follow Monetization Nation on Instagram and Twitter. What's the biggest turn or tectonic shift you've seen in your career? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in predicting the turns in your business so you can leverage the tectonic shifts. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.